0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Good afternoon. I'm your moderator today. My name is Klaus Jureko. It's wonderful to see so many of you out here for such an important subject. Uh, we certainly have the right speaker for it. And um, I congratulate you for coming out because it's, uh, it is such an important subject. And uh, as you all know, SACPA is the best deal in town. So you're, you're showing your intelligence for coming here. <laughs> <laughs> i give you just a little uh, first I have to do some housekeeping I remind you you have to put your $11 in the basket Brian you don't have to put any money in uh, and um, uh, the, uh, this is a voluntary organization please consider buying a membership from Lisa uh, sell, turn off your cell phones this uh, session is recorded so the rest of the uh, announcement we made at, uh, at the break so now I will let quickly tell you how this uh, session came about. I, uh, last year I took uh, the course from Brian at, um, at the university in human neuropsychology. And uh, I said to myself, oh, I got the right man for SAP. Uh, but why did I think so? <coughs> because I'm very interested in complex issues and complex systems. And what he was telling me in those lectures was certainly very complex. We're talking about the brain, the brain of all species. And um, complexity is all around us. In the terms of uh, power supply, internet, financial system, health service, you name it, it is all around us. Well, who is driving all these complex systems around us, it is us who's driving it. Well, it's not only us, but it's this thing up here that's driving it. And it is a complex system. So now we have a complex system with all these variables, each driving all these variables in all these other interconnecting complex systems. So no wonder, once in a while, things go wrong. So this is how this came about So let me now introduce uh, Brian, Professor Dr. Brian Kolb. Uh, He has been at the university for 37 years. He's written five books. He tells me his uh, uh, um, uh, course book is now being revised for the seven times. He gives lectures all over the world. He has published more than 300 uh, papers. Now where these people find the time to do all this, I have no idea. I tell you one thing: the taxpayer is getting a really good deal on Professor Cole. Uh, so, uh, with that, uh, I think uh, I found the right man to discuss these complex issues, and now he will relate to us not to worry, not to fear, that everything is uh, out of control or in control. Brian, is it? Please wel- welcome Professor Dr. Brian Cole.
1: <clears throat> Thanks, Klaus. I have to point out that he did come to my course, but he did decline to write the exams. <laughs> I'm not just sure why he made that choice. Um, you can make your own inferences. Um, I, I was looking in my computer and discovered that the last time I'd spoken here was in 2006 and it was about drug addiction, and I won't be talking about that when I'm going to talk to today is related to the causes, however, of drug addiction. So the um, key point that I'm going to make is that, you can see I've stolen this um, from Carl Sagan, but the basic idea is that everything in the world depends on our brains, and yet almost nobody in this room knows anything about them, and we should. And so that's what I'm going to try and um, tell you, and I'm going to tell you as well that the brain is crucial to education, health, and public policy, and at the end I'll come back to that. And if anybody has an ear or a voice with the government, listen carefully. <laughs> I want to make a, a little diversion here and talk about one part of the brain. I'm a, what's called a prefrontal cortex chauvinist. I've been studying this since 1970, and so I haven't found anything better to do. What part of the brain of that is that it's this stuff up here. And if you think about it, the term prefrontal is stupid. What, what would that mean? It would mean in front of front. So it would be Mike would be the prefrontal. Uh, but and maybe he is. But the reason of the brain that I'm talking about is this stuff up here. So this is called prefrontal. And this is the orchestrator of everything that that you plan, everything that you do. And you're going to see that it's critical that we understand how it gets the way it is. All right. The prefrontal cortex is very sensitive to early experiences, including experiences that your parents had before you were conceived. So experiences that your parents had before you were conceived can actually affect how your brain develops. So since my parents are dead, I can easily blame all of my foibles on them, and I'm going to at this point. Um, The development of the brain is a miracle. This is what our brain looks like. You can see it there. It has 100 billion or so brain cells that are neural cells, and there are about 10 to the 14 connections, so 100 million trillion connections and you could have a blueprint to build a house you could have a blueprint to build a university you could have a blueprint for all kinds of things but you can't have one for a brain it's just too complicated so what we do is something very different to build a brain we start out with more than we need so basically it's like we're Michelangelo we're going to carve the statue of David and what did he do? he started with twice as much as he needed and then he got rid of half of it and that's what we do we start out, started with twice as much brain as we need, twice as many cells as we need, and we get rid of half of it. And it's the getting rid of half of it that makes us who we are, because we don't all get rid of the same stuff. And you're going to see how that works. So the brain development is prolonged, and you can see here uh, it begins before birth, and I'm suggesting to you it begins before conception as well, and it continues on a lot longer than we thought. When I was a um, student a little while ago, um, we learned that the brain was pretty much developed when you were born and it's kind of what you had forever and it didn't change very much and we know that's just a pile of crap. The brain continues to develop well into your 30s. 30 years is um, and the reason that most people if i asked you when when did you become who you are? For women, it, they're probably going to say something like, i don't know, 27, 28, that's who, who i am, that person. And for men, a little older, 30, 35. That's who I am. It's a little scary that the university hired me when I was 28, so I was just a child. Um, But I didn't know that. But the brain is continuing to develop well into the 30s, which means the experiences that we have after birth will affect our brain development for a long time. And you're going to see that they compound one another. But here's the trick. There are two really critical times in brain development. One of them I'm going to walk over and point to this. Beginning at conception and going until about one to four years. And then, not that it's not important for a while, but things are changing at a slow rate and then really fast beginning in puberty. Beginning, say, around age 11 or 12 in girls, maybe slightly older than boys. So what happens here? You can see that those lines going up. They're going up very fast. So by age two, you've created most of the synapses, the connections in your brain at least in the back part of your brain um, that you're ever going to That's not true. You've created an enormous number of synapses that's reached its peak. You're going to make more later, but in a different way. And then you sit there, and then you start to get rid of them. So you can see the line, the first line coming down begins coming down around age two, and that's cells at the back of the brain. So you lose half of those cells, and you lose half of the connections. Now, for the prefrontal cortex, the stuff up here, you don't reach your peak until about age three or four or maybe five, depending on your developmental rate, and it starts to drop around age 11 or 12, the rate at which you lose those connections is staggering. You're losing at the peak around 100,000 connections per second. So 100,000 gone, 100,000 gone. Now, think about a 13-year-old girl. Those of you who've had the pleasure of raising one know that when they're 13, now you understand why they are so crazy. They're losing 100,000 connections every second. Of course they don't know who they are. <laughs> it takes them a while to figure it out, and they're getting rid of all these connections. So the issue here is, what's driving the loss of those connections? Why are they, why are they vanishing? They're vanishing because of, obviously, uh, gonadal hormones, sex hormones, but experiences they're having as well. So we're going to call that pruning. And there's good pruning, and there's bad pruning. So getting rid of those connections is really good if you do it right. One of the worst ways you can get rid of those connections is under the influence of marijuana or under the influence of nicotine. And when do kids start doing those things? Right then. And so if I were to look at the change in your brain in response to nicotine or marijuana, and I'm guessing here no one is 13, by the gray hair, you can't remember being 13. Uh, I don't. Um, But... There are changes in your brain, but they're nothing like the changes that occur in the brain at a time that it's so uh, changeable, so malleable. This is a real problem. I mean, you read statistics on marijuana um, use in in children now and teenagers, and it's uh, some statistics say 80 percent. Well, if 80 percent of kids are being exposed to marijuana before age 16, we've got a problem here. Uh, But that's not the topic. Okay, so. One of the new fields that's made a huge influence uh, to me and, and to the world is called epigenetics. So what is epigenetics? Epigenetics refers to a process where gene expression is changed, but DNA doesn't. So I'm going to give you a metaphor. I've got a watch, and I can look at my watch, and I can tell the time. There it is. I've still got a watch, but I can't tell the time. It's covered up. Is the watch working? Well, yeah, it is, but it's, it's useless. Okay, now it's not a watch. Now it's a gene. The gene is working. Now it's not working. That's epigenetics. So genes are turned on and off, and most of the genes in your body are turned off right now. And if you think about it, the cells that sort of the DNA in the cells that make your skin and the DNA in the cells that make your bone and your eye and your toenails um, is the same, but what you see is very different, and that's because so many genes are turned off. Genes are turned on and off by experience. As well, and in fact, that's one of the big drivers. This is just a filler to, to impress you that I know something about biology. So that's DNA. <laughs> Environment is a common agent in producing what we call phenotypes, and we have this concept of phenotypic plasticity. So here's some creatures, and I don't know how well you can see at the back, but I'll tell you what's on there. They're creatures, the names of which I don't know, but they're. Um, if you look at the top row, there's no spiky things sticking out of them. They're fairly mild-looking. The bottom row, they've got all kinds of spikes sticking out of them. Those are the same creatures. All we have to do is introduce a predator into their environment, and their body changes. They now start um, driving little spiky things for protection. That's epigenetics. Genes are being turned on or off in order to change morphology. Well, you can see it there, and it's, it's obvious. The brain is actually more sensitive to experiences than the external part of the body. So if you think about it, we're not growing little spiky things, but we are changing the construction of the brain in response to experience. The number of factors that uh, alter gene expression is just mind-boggling. When I started looking at uh, these factors about 30 years ago, um, shortly after the time that we got a letter from, which you'll remember, from um, the president saying, dear colleagues, we have a problem. And we may have to close. And so uh, that was, those were bad days for the university, not as bad as they are now, perhaps, one could argue. I'll oh, that might make that comment. But anyway, that was about the time we got that letter. Um, and I had just come. It didn't seem like a good place to have come to. I was wrong. At any rate, uh, the brain, when we started studying this stuff, about that time, I thought maybe a few things would change the brain. I haven't found anything yet that doesn't it's quite amazing. So let's look at some examples of what I'll call good and bad experiences. This is neither good nor bad. This is just an experience. So there's a little a story here. Terry Robinson was one of the first students who worked in, a, in what has become a neuroscience lab. He worked with Ian Wishaw beginning in 1972. And um, he later got famous, and he's at the University of Michigan. And the University Alumnus Association gave him an award for Distinguished Alumnus of the Year. And Kathy, you remember Terry, I'm sure. And so, what happened was, um, he came and gave this talk, and he talked about how addiction was related to uh, chemistry. It was changes in chemistry in the brain and so on. And we went for a walk afterwards, and I said, Terry, nice talk, but the biggest pile of crap I ever heard. It's just not true. Addiction has to be related to, to, to structural changes in the brain and epigenetic changes in the brain. And he said, Well, no one's ever shown that. And I said, Send brains. So, he did. And we haven't found a drug yet that doesn't leave a permanent footprint in the brain, a psychoactive drug that doesn't leave a permanent footprint in the brain. This is an example of amphetamine, and you can see visually, I hope, that the cell on the right looks more complicated than the cell on the left. And in fact, it has about 30% more connections. Um, the one on the right has 30% more than the one on the left. So if you expose yourself to amphetamine or marijuana, or nicotine, you get a change like that. Now, different kinds of drugs do different things. The key thing here is that it's related to changes in gene expression. So it's, what's happening, this is an experience, and this experience is changing your brain. Well, that's, it's neither good nor bad. Uh, I would say it's bad in the case of nicotine and bad in the case of amphetamine because I don't do those drugs. But when you, I tell you that it also is changed by caffeine, um, <laughs> that's obviously a good one. And you have to remember, one of the reasons we have psychiatric drugs is to change the brain. That's the whole point. So some of the changes we can produce are actually, hopefully, good changes. Here's another example. This is, I would call, a good one. You don't know this, but one of the, if not the world's expert on play, one of the world's expert on play behavior is Sergio Pellas, who's been here for 25 years, Australian. He and I worked closely together for most of that time. And what, his story is answering the question, why do we play? all mammals play most uh, vertebrates play and it ha- must have some function and you can see here two rats playing and some kids playing now if you're rats it, rats play the same way that cats play so rats will try to nuzzle the nape the back of the neck of the other rat and the other rats going to try and prevent them from doing that so if you've watched kittens play given that you live in Alberta I'm guessing you haven't watched a lot of rats play but <laughs> Unless you've been over at our place. Um, but kittens, a lot of you have seen them, it's just, they sort of like roll around and they're just going all over the place like this. Well, rats do the same thing. And they're trying to get to the back of the neck of the other guy. Why? Why would they do this? It's not play fighting. If you're fighting, where's the last place you want your face? Right by the teeth of the other guy. It's by the other guy's butt that you want your teeth. and You can sink them in there. Uh, you don't want them by the face. So it's clearly not practicing to fight. It's doing something else. What it is, it's a form of problem solving. And so what you've got is animals learning to solve problems by play. Okay, so what? Well, it turns out that play modifies the brain. So if we can manipulate the amount of play animals get by giving them more or a few play partners, and when you do that, what you find is that the prefrontal cortex structure is altered by the amount of play that you get. So what? Well, it turns out the more play you have early in development, the more responsive that prefrontal cortex is, text is to experiences later in life. It makes the brain more flexible. So lots of play makes the brain more flexible. No play makes the brain inflexible. Now, I don't want to get too um, un-PC here, but think about homeschooling and think about kids not being allowed to play and the impact that has. So you have to have play outside of that. And play does not mean playing on a hockey team or a soccer team, because there are rules. That's not problem solving. That's playing by rules that are given to you by adults who know better supposedly. It has to be free play to make a big difference. But it's changing the brain. That's a good thing. Bad thing would be stress. Here's an example. So we can stress moms and we can do it in a variety of ways. Um, but one way is to take a pregnant mom and to put her in a little room and put her on a, a table out in the open and if you're a rodent this is a bad deal because you don't know when the cat's coming or the dog's coming or the eagle's coming to kill you. And so the corticosterone levels go through the roof when you do that. And so We can look at the effect on the brain, and the effect is to prune the brain back quite badly. And if you look um, on the left hand side there, you can see, sorry, the right hand side. Yeah, my other left. Uh, On the right hand side um, of that, and the right side of that, you've got a bit of a of a neuron that's been stressed prenatally. Now we're looking at adulthood, and and the normal is on the left. So what you're doing is you're stripping away connections by this early stress. Do you have to actually, and by the way, that stress passes from you, the effect of that stress passes from you to your children. So if you were prenatally stressed, the changes in your brain, because the gene expression changes can pass from one generation to the next, can pass on. And so along with Gerlinda Metz over uh, across the river, we've been looking at how many generations this goes for. We now have gotten to three generations, and we can still see the changes that are made from the prenatal stress. So these things go on for a long time. And so I gave a, um, a talk in, in Lac Lavish. This is uh, curious. and I, I was um, yesterday asked to make a list of all the public lectures I've given in the last five years. And it turned out that this one is number 77. And some of them are in real nice places, like Lac It's a long way up there. <laughs> um, so I gave two lectures up there, one to the entire school system and one to a public lecture. And the public lecture. Um, there were a lot of natives there, and I went, uh-oh, I, can, I know where this is going. So I gave my talk, and, and the elder got up, and he said, you say all these early experiences change the brain, and it's crossing generations. And I said, yes, you're talking about residential schools. And I said, yes, that's the story. Why hasn't anyone told us this? And I said, I just did. <laughs> and he said, well, how do we solve it? And I said, well, that's not quite so simple, but it's solvable. Uh, and, and we can ask questions about that. But these things go on for a long time. Well, do you have to actually experience the stress directly? And the answer is, well, no. So we did an experiment. Um, these are experiments I'm doing with Robin and Gibb. Uh, we did an experiment that was counterintuitive, but we had a mom who's stressed, the way I described, and a mom who lives with her, who's also pregnant, and she's not stressed. And so we looked... And that was our control. And we looked at the offspring of both moms, and it turns out that the mom who was not stressed directly was stressed indirectly. Well, how's that happening? Well, what happens is the mom who's stressed comes home, and she starts singing a song, which is a sad song, which is around 22 kilohertz. Basically, life is crap. You don't know what I've been through. And the other mom is listening to this, and she sings back a song that's a happy song. It's about 55 kilohertz. Life is good. And this goes on for hours. And so it looks like we can transfer stress from one animal to another. So think about mums at home. Dad's had a bad day. He comes home. He's grumpy. The stress is being the effects of the stress is now being transferred. The question is: Is the, are the changes in the brain the same? And the answer to that is no. They're not the same. Uh, can they be reversed? Eat more easily in the indirect stress? Yes, they can. So that's a good thing. Uh, but nonetheless, they're there. What about early brain injury? The brain is really sensitive to being born vaginally. So it turns out that if you look at um, babies who are born not by C-section, and they're asymptomatic, and you throw them in an in a MRI, one quarter of all babies have a cerebral bleed. One quarter of us had a cerebral bleed. We did pretty well in spite of that. The brain is really resilient to this, and these are mild ones. But of course, we have cerebral palsy. We have lots of things related to, to early... Um, Ischemia, And one of the things we've shown in our lab animals is that the rate of recovery from these early ischemic episodes is related to the experiences you have in human terms over the next two or three years. So these experiences are not only affecting what's going to happen in the future, they're affecting what's happened at birth or before birth. Uh, Head injury, I throw on on here, uh, such as concussion. Uh, Concussion in toddlers um, and in uh, children is not a good thing. It's more common than we realize, and a good reason why kids are wearing helmets. Although um, Bruce McNaughton in our group had a a baby a couple of years ago, and I gave this talk over there about early head injury. His baby was three months. next thing I discovered is he had the baby wearing a helmet all the time, and I said, it's not really that bad. You don't have to do that. So the outcomes um, are affected by early experiences and related, again, to epigenetic changes, which is what I said. Why do we care about this? Why do we care about these changes in the brain? If the brain is changed, it functions differently, and we are different people. So these early experiences, and especially the prefrontal experiences, um, have a profound impact on who we are. There's a wonderful study done by a guy called Vincent Folletti, and he has a wonderful phrase. He calls it turning gold into lead. And basically, he had an obesity clinic, and in the uh, context of this clinic... He would ask people about their childhood and discovered that everybody has a story. And he discovered that people have more aversive childhood experiences than you might expect. And so he started to study it. And what he discovered was that it, it, you can predict health at 50 years of age. So, what kinds of things are early aversive experiences? There's a list. There are things you'd think, oh, the list isn't there. Things you'd think someone dies, let's um, say it's home with, with uh, drug addiction or violence or whatever, all sorts of things that can happen. These are some sort of disorders that are related to it. Some are not directly brain, so macular degeneration clearly isn't brain. Um, But a lot of them are brain. And one of the neat ones is addiction. So if you have two or more ACEs, you're five times more likely to be addicted to nicotine. Um, If you have two or more ACEs and you're female, by age 50, you're five times more likely to have been sexually assaulted. And you think, well, how could that be? Why does having these aversive experiences make you a victim of sexual assault? And the answer is quite straightforward. Most people who are sexually assaulted are assaulted by someone they know. You have to evaluate the situation that you're in, and if you're executive of the brain, the prefrontal cortex isn't working right, you don't evaluate the world appropriately, and you make yourself vulnerable. So it has these sort of unexpected uh, consequences. The last thing I'm going to talk a little bit about here is brain development and literacy and the importance of this. So, the OECD has identified literacy, and they have a scale um, of five levels of literacy. And it turns out that if you look in Canada and the US, about 45% of the population is at levels one and two. Very small percentage is at level five, five is the highest. Um, And about 40% of the population is at levels three and four well that turns out to be almost half the population is at levels 1 and 2 and those people would not be able to read the lesbridge herald and understand the the level of, of literacy in there they wouldn't be able to understand consent forms sent home by the schools and so on that's an amazing statistic do the same study in sweden it's only 30% are swedes smarter than canadians in one way they pay higher taxes and they pour money into early childhood education Early child development programs. Well, if that's so true, can we look around the world and find a better example even than Sweden? And we can. Turns out that, and I'll get to it, Cuba is the, is the uh, best example in the world. So why is literacy so important? Literacy limits people's opportunities. It limits um, their, their ability to compensate uh, for stress. People have this idea that the most stressed people are the president of the university, which right now might be true, but in general. People at McDonald's may be more stressed because they're not literate. They're, it, it's difficult for them often to, to deal with the uh, environment that are surrounding you We Stress is in here. Stress isn't out there. It's in the, it's in the brain. You make it up. Um, low literacy is related to health. So the higher your literacy, the better your health. And it makes it diff- difficult to access parenting information. Here's an interesting statistic. If we look at children at three... Um, months of three years of age, 36 months, we can look at how many words they have and we can put them in groups. So we have kids who know about 1,200 words versus kids who know a lot fewer, so the lowest group there is about 400. That's a threefold difference in, in the amount of words they know. If we look at these same kids when they're 11, the difference has become much, much bigger. The kids who were high now have larger vocabularies than the mums of the low that's stunning. So why is that? It's related to a whole variety of factors, which I can get into. But it's real. So literacy. The effects of literacy can be seen at, at three years, and this is Cuba. So Cuba after the revolution, um, Castro was really interested in kids, and they set up a program whereby all pregnant moms had to go to these uh, units, and they had to stay there. They had to go monthly, and they had to s- they're they're attached to schools, and so they they're getting information about. Uh, childcare and so on uh, early on and the kids are getting all sorts of opportunities right away. OECD looked at language scores and in uh, Latin America and you can see Cuba, second from the bottom, is way out there r- related uh, relative to the other Latin American countries. Now of course as Canadians we say yeah but that's not in America no, Canada is going to be just as good you know, Canada is somewhere here Canada is lower than Cuba too Canada has a hell of a lot better education system you'd think We've got all sorts of opportunities. What's the difference? We don't pour money into early childhood education. And if you read the paper yesterday, the college canned the early childhood education program because of the 7.3% cut. And so that's a a tragedy. I don't blame the college. I'm pointing somewhere else. (laughs) If you look at New Zealand, New Zealand did a, uh, the education system did a really interesting study. And what they did, was to take kids at age five and identify their, their scores in mathematics and um, English and then look at them again when they were 14. And you know what? Going to school for all those years made no difference. You can predict at age five their mathematics and their, um, um, their English scores uh, at age 14 based on where they were. Same as those kids, the high and low literacy kids. Starts early. So what conclusions are inescapable from this? Early experience changes the brain especially the prefrontal cortex. It alters the trajectories that kids are on. Think of the low literacy versus the high literacy. How did that happen? Um, Early experiences related to literacy. It predicts health and happiness. The higher the literacy, the better your health, the happier you are. And the route to literacy is through stimulating the prefrontal cortex. And I've given you some idea, but one of the ways is by early interventions. Fraser Mustard, who many of you I've probably heard in Lesbridge, that was his crusade. So my key point here is that understanding how early experience can alter brain development through epigenetics is really a 21st century revolution. It's changing the way we think about everything. And the implications for public policy, um, for law, medicine, and education are profound. And I think that um, anyone who thinks that we shouldn't be pouring money into early education programs... That includes the federal government. The the uh, Martin government had a plan. I'm, I'm not pushing either party. I'm just saying they had a plan to for early childhood education, and the conservative government says, no, we'll just give all the parents a couple hundred bucks. No, no, giving them a couple hundred bucks isn't the same as having a program. And That, that isn't the way you do it. You have to have people who are well-trained. If you look in Sweden, the people who are teaching these three- and four-year-old kids have degrees. Kids who are teaching them in Canada have far less education, and makes a difference. And I'm going to stop there and um, give it back to Klaus.